Success stories and interviews with game changers and thought leaders who have overcome both in life and in business. Welcome to Vertical Momentum. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Vertical Momentum. I am your host, Richard Kaufman, also known as the Comeback Coach. Guys, this is going to be a fun and great episode. We're going to be talking to a true American hero and somebody that I really look up to. And his book was truly amazing. We're going to be talking about that. So we're going to be talking about business and how to take it to the next level in life and in business. But first, I want to thank our sponsor. As you guys know, our sponsors on this show are 100% veterans 100% of the time. Daniel Curry of Indy's IT department keeps all of our servers secure. And that's something we've really got to be cognizant of is keeping our servers secure. So definitely check out Indy's IT department. Guys, this is going to be a fun episode. And I can't wait to get started. David, what's up, my brother? Hey, how you doing, Richard? Oh, man, I'm doing great. Uh, your book is truly amazing. I actually read it twice in the last week. So um, I, I love it. But the most important question that we're going to see how this interview, if it can keep going. You went to Boston College. You went to Boston, correct? Co- Boston oh. University. Yep. And you big, live big in difference. Tampa. Yep. And you live in Tampa. I do. Yes. So are you a Tom Brady fan? Now, I'm a Miami Dolphin fan. So are you a Tom Brady fan? I am a Tom Brady fan. Me too. And uh, it, it, it pained me to say it, but he is one of the greatest and has one of the greatest mindsets of all time. And I definitely want to get into talking about mindset. So how was your day going today? It's going good. Good. Just kind of hanging out. I did a little bit of, uh, you know, golf in the morning, tried to get some swings in and some reps and improve my golf game. And then uh, had some housework to do around the house. And I'm working a couple other projects for um, some teaching things. And it's going good. Pretty mellow so far. That's awesome. Now, of course, you know, I knew you were going to be coming on. We talked about it a couple weeks ago. So I had to do my due diligence. And I've talked to a lot of people that you serve with. And I've actually even talked to people that you went through. Um, well, I call it basic, but it's uh, buds. So and they take a lot of things. They they talk about two things. Your heart and your mind. And they say you've had one of the biggest hearts, but also one of the greatest minds. And you're an abstract thinker. So I just want to let you know the people that you serve with really do love and appreciate you. Hey, thanks. That means the world. You know, that that's really the most important thing. So now talk to us. Tell us about a little bit about where you're from, uh, where you grew up and what kind of little boy was David? <laughs> so I grew up in a my dad was in a corporate family. He he worked for Motorola. He started off as, you know, a salesman. He came from absolutely nothing and joined the military, you know, during Vietnam. He signed up. He knew he was going to be drafted. A uh, pretty poor family came from. So he's like, I'm going to get drafted. So he signed up right after high school at 17 or 18. And he figured he would choose his own path. So he decided to go into the Navy, ended up, you know, in the Mediterranean defending the, uh, kept the Mediterranean and Europe safe from the Viet Cong. So he did his due diligence there. And then, uh, you know, got the GI Bill, went on to get a degree in college, and he went on to work as a salesman for Motorola. And then he worked his way up through the years, 
to become an elected officer in Motorola, way high up in the corporation. And with that, we kind of moved around. So for all intents and purposes, started out outside of Philadelphia and then moved to Harrisburg and then uh, moved to Colorado and junior high. And that was, you know, where the majority of, I guess, the shaping was and my childhood or the memorable childhood was spent was in just south of Denver and kind of the foothills of Colorado. And that kind of shaped where I was, I was just really into the outdoors and always out just doing stuff and adventurous things. And that's where sort of, I began this fascination a little bit with special operations and the military and what kind of a role or what did I want to do if I was going to join the military? And, and those things always, the special operations or the special units sort of always appealed to me rather than the larger track and being a part of this giant behemoth. I wanted to do kind of control my own fate and be part of a unit or something like that, that really was specialized and would get different missions and would be completely challenging. So now were uh, yeah. you a good, were you a good student? Were you a good athlete? I was, yes, I was, I was a above average athlete. I wasn't, you know, incredible. I played sports three seasons, you know, so I played sports year round. Uh, I wasn't good enough to make by the time it took me a little bit longer to grow. Like I had growth spurts later. So some of the sports, you know, I didn't end up playing varsity baseball, for example, I played all the way through till senior year and then senior year just wasn't making the team. And then, uh, but you, you kind of learn from those things. And I played everything. I played year round, like I said, so I did soccer, I did, um, track i did i skied a lot when we went to colorado so that kind of replaced um some of the winter sports but i played basketball all the way up until i got big into skiing so just an all-around athlete um not getting any scholarships or anything probably not collegiate level and then uh academically uh i was very good i was straight a's and that's what i ended up getting was a uh, academic scholarship through rotc and then picked my path from there and ended up going to Boston University. So talk to us about, you know, when you finally, because I love to hear everybody's first time in the recruiting store stations. So tell me about your recruiting story and your first, um, you know, when you first went into the recruiter. Well, it's different. So you don't really, I guess you go in there and the recruiter's a little bit different. They're looking for enlisted. So what I was doing was I was applying to, the service academies. And so I had applied to the air force Academy and I had applied to the Naval Academy and the air force Academy. So then you have to go through a whole process of getting congressional recommendations or Senator recommendations. And there, there's a huge process to it. So I get all that done and I'm able to apply to the academies. I was denied at the air force Academy. Uh, I didn't have 2020 vision. I, you know, I was looking at, Hey, what do I want to do? Do I want to be a pilot? That would seem really cool. I was always sort of fascinated with that. Then the Navy end of things, it had the diver. It had, I really wasn't looking at SEAL teams too much because I had, I didn't have 20-20 vision. So I had made this assumption that, of course, to be a SEAL, you have to be perfect and have 20-20 vision. So anyway, uh, I get denied for the Air Force Academy. That was based on vision. And I get an alternate status for 
the Naval Academy. At the same time, I was applying for ROTC scholarships because I didn't know, you know, if the academies were right for me or not. And I get uh, most alternates generally tend to get into the academy. So they fly me out to the Naval Academy for a visit and you're there for like, I think it was three, four days, something like that. I realized on day one, this is not for me. This is way too military. <laughs> it was, I mean, it's just uniform all the time. They're running around harass. I'm like, this is not for me. I just am not a conformist like that. You know, not that they're all conformist, but mm. just to each individual that wasn't for me. So I decided, no, no, no. I want to go the ROTC path and go have more of a college experience and then get commissioned out of that program. And then I started hunting around, you know, where did I want to go to school? What was I going to do? And my dad had suggested he had lived in Boston at one point in his life. And he's like, look, Boston's an awesome town. You've never lived there. You should move a thousand miles away from your family anyway. So you can go off and be on your own. Um, try, try Boston. So I was like, Boston University, here we go. And that started that process. Now, talk to us about going through BUDS, because, you know, I've, I've had on, you know, um, some, of, some of our friends, uh, McCaskill, um, Rich Vinny have been on. And yeah. they tell me about, you know, what mindset it took to make it through selection. Because I know you guys have such a high dropout rate. And, you know, both of them, I asked them the same question. I said, you know, what is it? And they said, well, we were just going to do one more rep. We were just not going to quit. They would have to kill us before we were going to quit. So what was your mindset like going through the selection process? That That's that's the exact mindset is that you'll have to kill me. I'm not going to quit. I don't care if I pass out. I don't care what happens, but there's no way that I'm going up and ringing that bell and quitting. It's just not going to happen. And so when you get in that mindset, that's something you truly internalize and commit to, then you're going to make it. The, there is some performance issues. There's guys who get dropped in performance issues. And there's also guys that get just, there has to be some small element of luck with it as well. Because I've seen guys, you know, just running along and step in a pothole and break their leg. Um, you see guys get stress fractures from all the running that we used to do in boots. Um, and just somehow, you know, unlucky, the body broke or things like that. But you can look around you and you can tell largely from the beginning who's, you can identify a core of who's going to be around and who's going to make it through. Now, there's some others that make it through that you maybe didn't identify, but there's definitely a core. You can kind of see like, yep, this person's going to be around. And I was never really um, surprised, I would say, when somebody quit. It always seemed so, to be like, yep, I can see that. Okay. So what are some of the things that, would, that you would see now, especially now, um, that would make a person succeed and make a person fail. It's about internalizing, internalizing the commitment that you have. It's not about speaking it. It's about just going as, you know, I talk about a little bit in the book and some pieces of you want to have sort of contingency plans, but 
in a lot of these cases, you need to be all in. So don't have, you know, in the case of like buds, don't have a backup plan. Just go, this is the plan. This is the only way that I'm going. And you just persevere and push through it. And so there's going to be ups and downs, but it doesn't matter. You know where the end of the road is that you're trying to go, which makes buds relatively simple. You know, not that doesn't make it easy, but it really makes it simple. You're like, here are the things that I have to do. And the end of the road is there. That's not really how kind of life works. But it, in this case, it's the small microcosm and you go, okay, I'm going to push all the way to the end of the six months. I know where the end is and I'm not giving up. And once you've got that, everything else can fall into place. You just take that off the table as an option is, is really the key. And it's hard to do. It's, you know, it's the easiest advice to give, the simplest advice, but it's very, very difficult for people to execute. Now, one of the gentlemen that I talked to said that, um, you know, after graduate, you know, after Hell Week, and after you know, after graduating and finally getting his trident, he said he kind of got into a little bit of a kind of depression because he find not a depression, but he's like, all right, I hit my goal. You know, my goal was to get the trident. Now what? You know, everything was on such a high for those six months. And then he said it went to a little bit of a lull. Did you ever experience anything like that? No, I, I honestly didn't. For me, um, I was ready to get to work and doing all of that as sort of practice. And you're like, okay, now I've hit that wicket. What's the next hill? Okay, now I'm excited to go actually get involved and be part of the team. And there's always new challenges and new gates and new wickets to go through. And so... I was really excited when I, when I came to the team, I didn't have this, uh, I, I didn't have any of that sort of feeling. I was excited to get on with the next thing. Now you went into to the teams as an officer, correct? Yes. Yep. So, you know, what is it like to, you know, become leaders of men? I mean, I, I was only an, a non-commissioned officer and I knew what it was to make sure that my guys were taken care of. Um, what was it like becoming a leader of men? What, and that, what was that mindset like? Yeah, really, it's you have to have this mindset. Of, it's, it's very interesting, the SEAL teams, because it's, it's a different type of leadership that needs to be exercised because you're in smaller units. So I'm not necessarily running, you know, a thousand man unit or guys that are maybe there just for a temporary period. You, everybody's been vetted. You've all been through the same initial training. You're all going to go through the same training, continue on together in very small, tight-knit groups. And you're going to be leading guys that are, or you're going to be in the formal position of authority over guys that have been around for years. You could have guys anywhere from, four years to 10, 15, 20 years, that suddenly you're there in a formal position of authority. So you learn very quickly that you need to be humble and you need to listen and you need to, you're, the biggest piece of the leadership there is trying to figure out who you can trust, who you can follow that's going to help guide you down this path and help you grow. So, and those are the enlisted guys and the NCOs. 
you know, and you might look at other officers, but you're going to be around these NCOs a lot. And that's like the role of, you know, a big role of the chief. If you have a good chief, a good E7 out there in charge of your platoon, a huge role for him is to help that new officer grow. And I was very fortunate. Um, the first platoon that I did, I, it was a very experienced platoon. I was the only new guy in it. So that's a very, that's a pretty rare thing. And as long as I was willing to listen, they were willing to teach and they'd been around long enough that egos had kind of been stripped away for a large, you know, a large portion of them. And they were eager to teach me as long as I was willing to learn. And so, you know, that's a big lesson for life is you're in this continual learning mode and there's always somebody who knows something that you don't or knows more about a topic or a subject than you do. So it's extremely important to have sort of this humility where you're not only going to lead, but you're really going to follow. And that's, that's sort of the key to it. I love that. And I was just listening to, I think it was um, Dale Carnegie's speech. And he said, you know, everybody is your superior in one way because they know something that you don't know, but everybody is equal. So you can learn from everybody. Now, one thing I love about the Steels is you guys plan and you plan, and then you plan again, and then you plan even more. Your attention to detail is truly amazing. And I think that's one thing what Caskill really harped on was that you guys plan for the contingency plan for the contingency plan for the contingency plan. So talk to us about that. You know, we're going to be talking about business in a little bit. And it seems like a lot of people, when they start businesses, they don't have a plan. So talk to us about what the teams taught you about planning and planning. Yeah. So really, you know, it's a pretty unique scenario in the teams because what you're doing is life and death. So you take things a lot more serious and you're really going to tend towards what is the worst case scenario that can happen. And that's where you're going to plan towards, Hey, how do we do this? And we rehearse it. So we look at a target, whatever it may be, or you have a mission and you go into planning. Now you're constrained. You have time constraints. So a lot of that planning is, you know, I would say that there's a formal piece to it that eventually gets written down, but it's coming up with it. And it's the informal piece that's important. The actual plan, and this is in business as well, is not as important as the planning that went into it. The planning is what's important. That should be 95% of your time. 5% of your time is writing down the plan and then you go execute. But it's talking about all those possible contingencies. It's talking about what could go wrong. What did we do if this happens? What do we do if this happens? And as you do that and you discuss those, what happens is that when you're in the scenario or you're executing the plan, it's really hard to be surprised. So you are responding vice reacting. So you've already thought through a lot of these scenarios. So when you get thrown a curveball or Murphy's comes in, you know, Murphy's law comes in as inevitably happens. You're not surprised. You're able to respond, not react. And you say, okay, yeah, we thought about this. I got this. Okay. Here's where we're moving now. Here's what we're doing next. So it, it is, and, and you want to make things in the planning and in the rehearsals and in your exercises, your training should be way harder than game day. 
so that you've covered so many different dynamic scenarios, so many different looks, and you're establishing mental models as you go that when it comes to the real event, it actually executes, you know, the majority of the time a lot smoother. Now, you know, when I was an NCO, you know, I, I took the NCO creed very, very seriously. And for me, it's even in life now, everything is about building relationships. And for me, I noticed that the more that my guys knew that I cared about them, um, they would run, run through a brick wall if I asked them to. And I think, you know, a lot of people, they have the rank, but a lot of people don't respect the person. They just respect the rank. So talk to us about what true leadership really is. Yeah, that's, you know, that's what it's all about. It's about building trust and you become a team. That doesn't mean that you have to be best friends, but you have to know that the person you're following has your interests in mind as well. You know, you're not just an ends to a means for them. You want to know where they want to go in life. Where are they trying to get to? And you align those things with where you're trying to get to as the leader, where you're trying to lead them. And so then you start establishing this trust and there's a piece in, you know, then how do you establish trust? Well, it becomes about transparency and honesty. I mean, that's a real key to it. The, especially, you know, the guys that I had in the SEAL teams are the majority of them are probably smarter than me, you know, at least street smart, common sense wise. And you're leading these very high performing individuals. So you try to bullshit them or you show hypocrisy. They sense it immediately and they know it's out there. Nothing will kill trust worse than being a hypocrite. So you have to have, you know, what we'll call integrity and integrity to me is consistency in your thoughts, your words, and your actions. Those all have to align. And when they align, they know how you think. You start to develop trust. You're transparent, honest, and open with them. And they go, hey, he's got my back. You know, and I love that, you know, because like you said, you know, I was in a tank unit and, you know, we had four tanks to, to a company, I mean, to a platoon, but we had our four guys. And eventually we got, we became so close, we could just look at each other and know what each other was thinking. Is that what you guys got so close that you were able to do stuff like that? And that's where, that's exactly where you try to try to get to. And that's the development of the team. That's why you have so much time practicing together. You, you can identify a guy's silhouette, you know, how, how he moves, mm -hmm. um, body language becomes important. I know who that guy is over there across the dark room or whatever. I can just see his silhouette or in the woods. I see how he walks. You know, he might hold his shoulders a certain way. He's going to advertise what he's going to do through his body language. I know sort of how he thinks and they know how I think. And you develop that over time. It doesn't happen right away. That's, you know, it's sealed teams. It's such an integral part to be part of a team and you can't just throw a bunch of guys together and say in the next two days go out and do this you're not going to operate at maximum performance i love it and, and i you know i'm a big sports geek and i know you know I, I was a lakers fan when they put everybody together and they couldn't win a game even though they had like five six hall of famers on the court at one time and they couldn't even win a game 
because they, they, they didn't know how to operate as a team. Now you did over 20 years, correct? Yes. So what was it, you know, cause eventually when you started hitting the 10, you know, 11 year mark and you start seeing the guys that you came up with starting to retire, get out, what was it that made you said, you know, I want to keep on going and there's more that I want to do. I'm not, I'm not done yet. I just took it. I took it job by job. And, you know, initially I wasn't going to do 20 years. You know, I was going to do my first, your first obligatory tour coming out of ROTC is like four or five years or something like that. And so that generally gets you to about platoon commander. I'm like, Hey, there's my first goal. I'll go be a platoon commander and then we'll see. And so I did that. I was enjoying it. And I saw what the next job coming up was. And I'm like, oh, I'll do that next job. That sounds good too. I'd like to go be a task unit commander and go out and do this. All right. I'm still enjoying myself. This is a really cool organization. I'm around great people. So why not continue? And I kept making those decisions as we went. Now the calculus becomes a little bit different as you get past say 12 years or so. At that point you start looking at, you know, the 20 year retirement. So there's a, a line there where essentially you're going to get, um, for life fiscal benefits and you go, okay, now it's time to make a decision. Hey, about that 10 to 12 year point, am I going to go all the way or do I get out now? And some people actually get out, you know, I've seen people get out around 17, 18. It's kind of interesting, but at that point at 12, I kind of decided, Hey, I'm going all the way to at least 20 and then we'll figure out from there what's next. So when you started moving up higher and higher in the ranks, you know, sometimes like I've met a lot of officers, you know, that they kind of forgot where they came from and it kind of, because, you know, for guys like me, I was only, you know, a, a tank commander. I never got the really ch chance to see the big picture until I got to hang out in the talk and got, you know, got to, got to hang out with it the you know battalion and the brigade commanders so what was it like you know when eventually moving up and kind of not being away from the the uh, you know the ncos and the lower tiered officers yeah it, it, it depends on what job you're doing at the time so i did have a couple that took me to very high levels and you just weren't around those you were around high level ncos so you're around all the master chiefs or senior chiefs all the time and you do become a little bit isolated. So you have to proactively make sure you go outside of that and see really what's going on. This is how we kind of get this bias of, you know, group think can start to go on. If you're all, you're not getting exposure to the young guys that are coming up anymore, that you need that. And you need to be able to reach back down and kind of hear or at least do, you know, I'll call them sense-making sessions of what's going on. And they're not formal, you know, these formal ones just don't work. You need to get down and kind of go and have a cup of coffee with the guy, you know, sit down with them or be mentoring somebody who's coming up so you can see what they're going through and what they're experiencing and how they perceive the world. So that's, it's all about kind of making sure that you still stay in touch so that you can see multiple perspectives so you don't get blinded by one and and you're absolutely right to see this all the time in the generals and admirals or you see it in ceos or c-suite who lose touch 
with where they came from and don't even know that they're looting. It's not malicious. They don't even know that they've lost touch. So you have to proactively make sure that you stay in touch and consider those perspectives of the people that are coming in new. Now, you know, you know, after you hit your 18th year, 19th year, did you start planning for your exit? Because, you know, I've talked to a lot of veterans now over 360 interviews and 90% of them did not have a plan. And, you know, even though we're all hardcore and hua hua, <laughs> you know, we get used to getting paid on the first and 15th, you know, we get used to TRICARE and all that good stuff. And a lot of times when, you know, like me, I got hurt on duty. So not only did I lose my vision, but I lost my career. I lost my guys and I lost my mission. So do you think people should start planning a couple years out before they get out? Or what are your thoughts on that? Um, I think it's all individual. So I had made the decision that I was getting out at 20. So I was able to sort of start planning for that piece, at least about, I started planning a little bit, maybe a year out and, but I still want to be committed to the job. So I was still full on doing the job. So it becomes difficult to divide your time a little bit. That said, it was about a year out that I started planning. So first you make the decision, am I getting out, you know, and I had made that decision. And so then I started planning. I didn't know what I wanted to do. You know, it, it was sort of the same thing. Like you said, you, you become a little bit lost. You're like, what am I going to do now? Where, what do I want to do? What's next? And that kind of confounds people. But as you look at it, you, it's not something you could control. So I did a lot of research to see kind of what different types of jobs are out there? What would I like to do? What would I not like to do? And a lot of it was experiential research. Um, I went to different interviews to try and figure out what were positions in companies. I talked to people. I looked at the corporate side of things. I looked at the financial side of things, um, two different sort of sectors, and tried to find what was a match for me. And uh, it's not it's not an easy process, but it's like the rest of it. You're, you can control what you can control you influence what you can influence and then the rest you navigate you don't you know i like to compare it to a good metaphor is a sailor at sea you know you can prep your boat make sure that everything's you know in working order and ship shape as we say make sure that you've checked the tides checked the weather you know the prevailing winds, things like that. And then you set off on your journey. Well, you don't control the seas. You don't control the winds. So now you navigate. You don't just draw a straight line from A to B, you know, and go that way. The weather is going to dictate, you know, the seas, the fuel, all sorts of things are going to influence you along your journey. So you're going to navigate those things. And you're going to meander a little bit, always knowing kind of, Hey, here's where, you know, my North star is that I'm navigating towards. This is a direction and azimuth that I have, but you know, from doing land navigation or anything else, you don't just go straight line. If you do that, <laughs> you're going to, you're, you're fighting the forces of nature. You know, you're going against the flow often. So 
Yeah, good luck mm-hmm. with that. <laughs> yeah, exa- exactly. So now, and now I'm going to say this, and you know, I, I, I'm not going to mention his name because I'm not about to be sued by anybody. But <laughs> you know, there's a lot of to- a lot of, or not a lot, but there's some people that get out of you know special operations, write a book, go on a book tour, and is a complete asshole. But <laughs> um, and you know they're not they're just resting on their laurels you know, complaining on different platforms and not trying to change the world that you live in. Like you are actually out there helping corporations and helping people uh, have a better life. So what was it that you just, you know, didn't decide, all right, I'm just going to go rest on my laurels, write a tell all book. And then I'm just going to go on a book tour for a while, then just hang out and complain and drink. (laughs) Now I was always very interested in, um, especially my last years in, I worked some special programs that were very complex problems. And so I started to, and, and the way that we were coming up with solutions to these things was very linear thinking. That's what we've always been taught. That's how our school systems designed. That's how, you know, the military, how business thinking it's very linear. That's not sufficient for, confronting complex problems. And I became very interested in the thinking behind it. And what I've started to find was that this sort of thinking is not very common. The ability to do this nonlinear type thinking, to be able to confront your biases, to be able to do systems thinking, you know, against, you know, complex adaptive systems. So, as I kind of continued on my journey, like, Hey, how can we help people? This would be really productive if a lot of people were thinking this way. And I discovered along the way that not a lot of people think like this. It's just been drilled out of us so much. It it exists at some depth, but it's been really drilled out of us. So we revert to this linear type thinking. Like, how can I, help expand people's critical thinking abilities and their ability to think creatively, ability to think differently. And so I founded a company with a buddy of mine that we do this. And then I found this, Hey, here's a, we thought about putting it into a book or I wanted to kind of put it in a book. I'm like, what mechanism can I use to make this interesting and begin people on this journey? And it was the mechanism of a lot of these things in the SEAL teams that we confronted. It's all about confronting complexity and ambiguity and changing situations and rapid pace of change. And I thought back on all these maxims that we have, these sayings, every military unit has them. And the ones that I use aren't exclusive to us. Some of them come from the Marine Corps. Some of them, I'm sure the origins aren't from the SEAL teams but they were things that stuck with me. And I'm like, I can use these as a mechanism to get people to think a little bit deeper and differently. And so the idea was just, Hey, we really need to bring back critical thinking across the all domains, you know, domain agnostic. It can do nothing but help everyone, every business, every society, everything that's going on. Uh, if we have people critically thinking and you know and i think a lot of people you know because we're now in the they say the instagram generation 
where, you know, we don't actually read books anymore, <laughs> study history, you know, like, uh, no, I'm, I'm, I, I got like eight books going at one time. Thanks. Thank God for ADD. Uh, but, you know, I'm reading a book on the autobiography of Dale Carnegie and they, you know, back in 1908, they're talking about masterminds. You know, this stuff is nothing new, but people just stop using common sense and they stop learning. It's just, they, you know, they say that the, the highest CEOs in the, in the country read 50 to 60 books a year, but the average person that gets out of, at a, a high school doesn't read a book a year. There's got to be some, an equation to a lot of people not wanting to, you know, raise their, you know, learn more, learn about solving complex problems. You know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, I do. Absolutely. And I think, you know, we can talk about where, where does this problem begin? I think some of it begins in the education system, you know, is it is about reading and about learning the history. You need to have a context of where we came from, where are we currently and where do we want to go? And you're getting with this generation, not just this generation, you know, the last couple of generations obviously is very you know, I don't know all the reasons to this, but, you know, I'm just kind of hypothesizing with you. But we have this very immediate gratification society. What society in the United States has become so successful and so comfortable, which is a great thing. But there's a lot of immediate gratification that is out there. And we want like sound bites or we want our information digested in really tiny things. So we're slowly killing the ability to individually think and to critically think about what do I see? What do I see in a news article? What do I read in this book? How do I, you know, every book you read, there's gems in there that you can take away, but there's also things that you don't agree with or, or there's false statements made or there's, you know, misleading things, but you have to be able to critically think to identify those. And I think that there is something we are killing this critical thinking ability with this immediate gratification piece. And you're right. I think it needs to be reintroduced. You know, there's another piece that could go along with it is we've become a heavily specialized society to a large degree. And I am a big proponent of what I'll call expert generalists. So the, like you talked about, you know, Dale Carnegie, these guys were polymaths. They were Renaissance men. They had lots of knowledge, lots of different areas that they had knowledge in to some depth, not super deep, like a PhD or somebody or total expertise, but they were widely read across a variety of domains. They were widely educated across a variety of domains. And that just exposes you and opens up your thinking. And I think that that's sort of, you know, the traditional liberal arts education gives something like that. And that's where we sort of need to get back to is this wide breadth and have this sort of core in our education that is history, reading, literature, the basics in math and sort of get away from some of the specialized things. You can do that later when you find an area you want to dive into, but don't begin that too early. 
and I totally agree with that, you know, and I also believe that, you know, some of the younger generations that are coming up can't do what we're doing right now. They can't just sit and conversate. You know, if, if it's not done through test, text message or messenger, they don't have any idea how to communicate. And then, you know, they say that the number one fear is public speaking. So I think if, if a person wants to crush it in today's day and age, being able to communicate like you are and I are and, I, and we're doing and also public speaking, I think you can absolutely crush it because you can be so far above the people that aren't willing to do that. You know what I'm trying to say? Yes, I think you're absolutely right. And I would add on there, too. We're losing this art of the ability to communicate in the written word as well. So, you know, when we were kids, we wrote letters that happened, you know, now we're even moving away from emails to texts. Like I look at some of my kids texts. I'm like, what the hell? You've got more acronyms in there than the military has. That's not even a sentence. Like what? <laughs> LOL, JK, you're like, what the hell is this? Yeah, I got to go there. What, what does that mean? It, all this. So it's communicating in these little sound bites and things, which eliminates tone. And they they have a hard time carrying on a conversation, doing this back and forth. They have a hard time forming an argument because of the ability to critically think. And we're sending, I think, sometimes the wrong message that you your emotions can define your argument well they can't that you have to be able to defend your argument with facts and a logic you know there's a whole school of argumentation it's a you know a topic of study on how logical arguments are formed and that goes to critical thinking and when you have a conversation there's a give and take to it you know like a tennis game or a match where say one thing there's a response you listen to the other person talking and then you talk or you formulate a response but we get these days where you're not listening to the other side you're formulating your response before i've even talked (laughs) and so there's a there's a pace issue there as well well you know i think a lot of it you know that people don't realize that there's a difference between hearing and active listening. And <laughs> yes. uh, that was something like I listened to one of my podcasts. I did the first episode and I sounded totally horrible. I'm cutting people off. And uh, then my wife was like, you need to listen to that back again because you're not listening. You're just waiting for the next question to, to ask. I was like, oh, OK, I get it. So now I got to ask you a question because I loved when you were on Fox News. <laughs> I, I loved it. I loved it. I actually saved it. I actually have it on my DVR. And, I, and I've watched it a couple of times. Um, and the reason why I wanted to bring it up, just because you mentioned something earlier, you know, you talked about honesty and integrity and transparency. So what are, I know what your feelings are, and, and, um, but do you think that, you know, even in the upper governments, that if somebody screws up, they could just say, listen, I made a mistake. Because, you know, the American people are very forgiving. You know, if you say, oh, listen, I effed up, um, I let's change it. That, you know, that's one thing. But when we don't have that honesty in the upper, upper governments, don't you think it goes down to the lower governments? I do. I think, you know, really we have to look at, again, what can we control and influence? And that starts at the local governments. 
and you get involved in that or you make sure that you're voting in local elections because those people are going to move on or they have political aspirations to move on into possibly federal government or statewide. So beyond your city to statewide to then maybe federal, <coughs> excuse me. And it's really important to get involved there. And you're, you're right. We are at a sort of an inflection point, I think in our society and our political landscape and political system. It's unbelievable to me that, you know, when you do polling, which I don't completely believe in polling, but it's, it's informative to some extent when you have so little trust in our politicians because they've become so corrupted on, and this is not partisan. It's on both sides of the aisle. The And so this goes back to sort of thinking about systems thinking what structures have created that? You know, what have we done? What needs to be done differently to gain trust back in our insti- government institutions, in our politicians? And there's be- there's incentives in there. So they're behaving. I'm a big believer in, you know, um, behavioral economics sort of things is that people follow incentives when they're incentivized to do certain things. So you have these politicians that are being incentivized by money and power and it keeps coming. So, you know, one of the most, uh, sure, it's like one of the most sort of depressing things I was ever told is when I started working in DC, uh, when I first went up to DC in the military, I sat down with a guy who was, um, a lobbyist, a couple of lobbyists and then uh, a what they call Office of Legislative Affairs guys that are on the military side. And I was told, hey, here's how D.C. works is number one, how things get done in D.C. The very first is reelection. You know, that's how politicians make decisions is number one, reelection. Number two is quid pro quo. They do something for something. And number three is favors to friends. And I'm like, what? You know, still semi-naive and going, what What about like national security, national interest? They're like, oh, that's like maybe number 10. And so if, if national interest or national security aligns with one, two, or three, then they're all about it. But if it doesn't, it doesn't matter. And I was really like, you got to be kidding me. But then I saw it proved out over the years. Now, there are exceptions to this rule. Of course, there's there's people in there that are trying to do good things. But I would say, by and large, they're not. And the general public can see the hypocrisy. It's blatant. For There's so many different examples of it that all you have to do is turn on almost any news channel. And you can see the hypocrisy and look back in history. And where you're really seeing it is in this day and age of video and recording <laughs> that we have their historical perspectives. You know, it amazed me. Like some of these older, you know, congressmen, congresswomen not know that videotape exists. How can they possibly lie like this? What kind of a, how do they sleep at night? And it is a little bit uh, 
depressing. So I say, you know, start at those local levels, do some critical thinking and know who you're voting for and what you're voting for. That's, and I know it's not a great answer, but no, the, that's, uh, a, that's a perfect answer. And, you know, a, a lot of guys that I know, because I'm involved in, in a lot of um, veterans groups, you know, after everything that happened with the Afghanistan pullout, a lot of them were in a really, really bad way. Um, you know, especially because, you know, we've lost brothers over there brothers and sisters and just the way everything happened. And a lot of them, people decided, you know, that I've talked to that are still in, they want to get the hell out. They're like, all right, I'm done. This is, it's not about us anymore. It's, you know, it's a, it's a total political shit show. So, you know, where do you see the military heading in our future? Wow. That, that is a tough one. I mean, I, I think that it needs some sort of a, uh, reformation (laughs) for, for lack of a better term, it needs a, a reinvention, a, a reformation in terms of, because again, you go to these behavioral incentives and I talk about, you know, admirals and generals that are out there. Well, they're incentivized by board connections. They're incentivized by the monetary piece as they get out. They're incentivized by the amount of power that they have. And when, then they start making decisions based on that calculus. This isn't, it's not all of them, but I'll tell you, I think it's, you know, nine out of 10. And so, when you have that type of a system, it needs to be put into check. Have they become almost, and, and the American people, you know, post 9-11 started putting the military on a pedestal, which I, I'm all about, you know, you should respect veterans and you should respect the service that they're going in. But that does not mean that you can't be critical of it or of the people in it. That's the whole idea behind civilian oversight of military institutions. And I almost get this impression that it's too big to fail. You know, we have guys in there that have been promoted after failure after failure because it's this cabal at the top that is protecting itself. And that then filters down into the ranks and they learn how the lower ranks then learn how to make decisions. So you're incentivized to get along. You're incentivized to go with the system. Going against the system has repercussions and penalties. So it's this perpetual beast that the only way out of that is a reformation or a civilian piece that steps in. Like, I don't know, you say, Congress comes in and says, hey, if you're a general or admiral, you cannot be in when you retire, you cannot be involved in a defense related board or contract or anything like that. Now, they have some ethics things that say like a year later or whatever. No, 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 none at all. If you want to if, you know, Microsoft wants to hire you because you're a, a supposedly brilliant leader or something. Okay. Let them hire you, but you're not going to work on their government side of things. And then it becomes about the service, not about what's going to happen afterwards. And so whether they're consciously doing it or unconsciously doing it, it, it is happening. So you almost need 
you need a rewrite of the the whole system. And so you change the structures like Goldwater Nichols Act. That's old. You know, it needs to be rewritten. They need to go back to being nonpartisan. But the fact is, is that you have a very partisan military now because above two star, you're a politician. Yep, I get it. So now the last couple of minutes we have, and I know you're very busy. And I just want to say thank you for taking the time and hang out with us today. It's truly appreciated. Um, what makes a, a veteran suited for um, going into business? Because I, I, I know that, you know, even, even if you've only spent a year or two in the military, we all know how to write an SOP or a nine line. But a lot of times, you know, when a vet person gets out of the military, they want to start a company. So they start a T-shirt, a hat, coffee, liquor company. And then $10,000 later, six months later, they're <laughs> in debt and they don't know what the hell just happened because they didn't start the SOP before they started a business. So what are the pros and cons of being a veteran um, and becoming an entrepreneur? I think that you have you have a wealth of experience as a veteran. You've proved that you can overcome a lot of obstacles. You have a perseverance as a veteran. You've been confronted with a variety of different problems that you're able to think through. You know how teams function. You know how good teams function. You've seen that. You've seen likely how bad teams function as well. So you get this wealth of experience that's in there across, again, back to that generalist kind of nature that can then apply to business. And whether that is um, going to work for a corporation, going into the world of finance, or starting your own business, you have a lot of these base tools and life experience that other people do not have and can't get anywhere else. And so you use those tools that you have to apply to the, the domain that you want to go into. I, I'm really amazed that there's not more. I mean, if I'm a business, I'm really heavily trying to recruit veterans, but there's a lot of stigma out there over this sort of linear think or that you're just a, you know, meat eater soldier and that's all you know well there's a lot more that goes into <clears throat> the the domain of veteran there's you know it's across the breadth of all domains so there's people in there you know you and i know them that are mechanics that are tank drivers that are pilots that are you know administrative people they know how to use you know likely they've been introduced to different computer science pieces so there's a huge range of experience and you use that and use the things that you learned as a veteran to either establish your own business. You know, we often, I guess it's um, similar to the doctor sort of working on his own kid or wife who loses, like they do fine when it's impersonal, but when it comes to them, they don't apply the same lessons that they've learned and they sort of freeze the veteran needs to sort of unfreeze that and go apply the things that you learned during your service to the establishment of your business. Ask, would I ever do this plan? You know, just jump in and buy a franchise or start a hat company. Would you do that? Think of it like a little bit like a military sort of plan. 
you need to be flex more flexible and more nonlinear with it, but you also need to say, okay, have I done my due diligence? Have I looked into this? What, and you have the tool set. You just have to use it and apply it to the domain that you want to go into and be realistic about it as well. You know, look at your resources. What resources do you have? Is there another way to get to where you want to go? So maybe I have to go into the corporate world. Maybe I have to go there first and learn a little bit about this. If I want to open a franchise, maybe I should go to work for a franchise first, kind of see how it works. Hey, what are the different positions in there? What, how, how does bookkeeping work? How do these things work? Do I go to work for another small business and kind of cozy up to the owner and go, Hey, how do I, how do I do this and start to learn about the business then branch out? Um, those are all, you know, you know, I would say that the veterans have the tools. You just have to apply, remember that they apply across domains and outside of the military as well. So how would your book benefit entrepreneurs and veterans? I think that it helps you. The whole idea is to get you to think differently. And that gives you a competitive advantage. If you're able to think a little bit differently, get outside the status quo, do some nonlinear sort of problem confrontation or solving. If you're, it'll help you reflect on your own thinking. It helps you get into a deliberate sort of mindset. So there's all sorts of nuggets in there that you can pull away and help you essentially reflect on how you think about things. It's not about what you think. It's about how you think. And that's what the book's trying to do is get you to think a little bit differently and reflect on how you think and embrace some of these ideas that thinking is the key to success. I love it. So now how do we find you? How can we get the book and how can we support your mission? Uh, you can go to dcsears.com. That's my website. And you see all the different things that I'm involved in from, you know, speaking to I have another business, Chris Thinking, and there's workshops out there that we hold, you know, quarterly or so. It depends. Uh, people can sign up for those. They can, you know, like you said, I've been on Fox News and things like that a couple hundred times. Um, the you can get the book on Amazon. Uh, you can get it at Barnes and Noble, you know, basically anywhere kind of books are sold. You can go find the book and get on that. And then I'm working on, we'll work on getting up some sort of a thing on the website eventually that you can get a, a signed copy, but I'm still still sort of working that, some kinks out there. But that's it, dcsears.com is sort of the best way to start your adventure. I love it. Last question I ask everybody, and, and I, I, I ask a thousand people and I get a thousand different answers. You know, we're still in a, a COVID world. We live in a crazy world, and, and I'm in New Jersey, so thanks to our governor, I think we're going to be going on another la lockdown again. Um, oh, my God. And we got a lot of parents that have lost jobs, a lot of parents that are, you know, driving Uber and DoorDash just to put food in their kids' mouths. So if I ask the average American to do something in seven days, they're never going to get to it. But if I ask somebody to take an actionable step in the next 24 hours, if they're listening to this, they're more likely. So if somebody is struggling with their business today, what can they do in the next 24 hours to get some clarity? Yep, they, they need to step back. 
And I would say, start writing down where, figure out where you are right now. Write down where I'm at now. Then write down where do I want to go? What are, but it's a range of what are acceptable futures to me. It's a range of futures. Don't put a dot on the wall that you may miss. What are a range of acceptable futures for you? And then sort of draw a little meandering path that what are some things that are going to get me to that and begin to navigate that path. That's, I mean, I would draw it out on a whiteboard. It's not, um, it's not in stone, put it on a whiteboard so you can reference it and go, Hey, here's where I'm at now. Here's where I came from. That's contextual. And here's where I want to go. These range of acceptable futures to me. And so now you look at that in terms of your business and go, Hey, I might have a little less revenue, a little less profit. That's acceptable to me down to this level here. So how do I get there? Or I might have, you know, a higher revenue or higher profit. It's acceptable to me in this different. So think of it as like a range fan that you want to go towards and then start moving in that direction and taking actions to get you towards there. I love it, David, brother. I'm so grateful for you. Um, Thank you for your friendship. And if there's anything I can ever do to help support your mission, you know, I'm down for it. This will go out on next season. So I just want to say thank you and hopefully we'll keep in touch. And um, like I said, if you need anything, I got your back. Awesome. Thank you, Richard. Hey, thanks for all that you do. I mean, I looked up a lot of your stuff. You're, you're doing some really great stuff. Well, God bless you and your family and hopefully we're making a difference somewhere. You too. Even if it's (laughs) one life, that's it. That's all we need. Right. All right. Love you, brother. Be good. Take care. Thank you for joining us today. Please hit subscribe and share. Please feel free to leave us a comment.